This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. I hope you're well, wherever you are around the world. Um, I've got a pretty cool near-death experience to read today. Uh, This one is coming from a woman named uh, Laura. And uh, Laura had just given birth to a son, uh, and she began hemorrhaging. um, And then she received a a blood transfusion and, um, I guess, had some kind of complication um, with the blood transfusion, uh, had a crazy high fever, and had a near-death experience. Um, This occurred back in 1979, so quite a ways back. Um, But it's really a a fascinating near-death experience that she has a conversation with Jesus, kind of uh, this argument about whether she can stay or if she has to go back. So um, there's a lot of... uh, wisdom that she she gets from it and and a lot of things that we can uh, kind of discuss and, and try to learn from. Um, I found this uh, as per usual on the nderf.org website, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I will post the link in the description. Um, so please go check it out if you want to read it or if you want to uh, check out any of the answers to the questions that uh, they ask when someone submits a story. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of all I get. I got, um, we'll just, uh, we'll dive right into it. This is Laura's near-death experience. On May 18th, 1970, the day my first son was born, I had serious medical complications that led to a serious postpartum hemorrhage. I received several blood transfusions. I had an out-of-body experience wherein I witnessed the birth of my son and then heard the doctor tell my husband that they could save the baby, but I was going to die. From my vantage point at the top of the ceiling, I started screaming at them that I was not dead, but they couldn't hear me. I was terrified. Then I witnessed my own funeral and burial. It was terrifying because I wasn't dead. Then everything basically went black. It took three days before I could actually communicate and consciously respond to my surroundings. I was thus terrified of dying. I decided this awful experience was due to drugs. It took me years to get over it. Now let's fast forward to July 1979. Ten days after delivering my fourth son, I began hemorrhaging again. My husband rushed me to the hospital, where I received several more blood transfusions and surgery to stop the bleeding. I woke up in the recovery room feeling fine. With encouragement, my husband went back to work with a promise that he would return in a few hours and take me home. I dozed off only to wake up as my father entered the room. He lived 90 miles away, and his visit was a happy surprise. He bent over to kiss me, 
and I felt a shudder run through my body. Just nerves, I thought. But then my teeth started to chatter, and I began to have uncontrolled spasms. I was burning up. My father went running from the room to get help. Medical personnel came running into the room. A plastic sheet was thrown over my body, and then someone started dumping buckets of ice on me. I felt every piece of ice as if it were a knife piercing my burning flesh. I was in great pain. Then my doctor appeared. I heard the nurse say I can't get a pulse. Her temperature is over 106, and her organs are shutting down. Suddenly I could feel it, the hemorrhage again. I looked up at my doctor and said, I'm bleeding again. No, he said, you are having an allergic reaction to the blood transfusions you've received. No, I thought, he doesn't know, I am hemorrhaging. I am dying and my spirit is flowing out. I was then suddenly, overwhelmingly sad. I was sad to be dying without saying goodbye, I love you, to my husband and children, or my father standing right outside the door. Then I died. The first awareness I had was the absence of pain. What a relief. Then I became aware of the blackness. It was as if I was in a place of tremendous energy. A great black void, but I was not fearful. The void held me in calm and peace. I knew I had died to the world, but I had not lost consciousness for even a second. I was still me and still alive. Then I was with him and enveloped in such a great light and love, it defies description. There I rested in joy, bliss, and grace. He spoke to me, telling me that it was not my time and that I needed to return to my body to complete my life's mission. I did not respond to his remark, but instead asked him how he had done that. He spoke to me without words, without a voice, and yet I had clearly heard and understood every unspoken word. He said to me that I was in a different place, one in which communication was purely exchanged through the language of love. Here everyone spoke heart to heart and soul to soul, so that there could never be a misunderstanding. When I had been on earth and used the spoken word, there had often been great confusion as to what I thought I had said and what had been heard by my listener. They were often very different. He then reminded me again that it was not my time, and that I needed to return to my body and resume my earth life. Then I reminded him that he had promised me free agency, and I was choosing to exercise that agency to stay with him. He laughed with great joy and mirth at my stubbornness, saying, Yes, Laura, I would expect you to argue for your own case. The decision will of course be yours, but first let me show you some things. I was suddenly struck with wonderment and awe. He knew me. Everything about me was already known. I was part of his creation, and in me was the spark of God. It could not be otherwise. He was all-knowing. He was all-love, and I was a part of it all. 
Before me, there suddenly appeared a pristine, beautiful, white glistening beach. I saw my three oldest sons sitting together on that beach. Individually, I saw many parts of their future lives. I saw their struggles and their hardships. I saw how my death would add to their hardships. Sadness, loneliness, and anger seemed often to surround them. Then I saw the contrast I, as a mother, would be in their lives. Their paths were lightened because of my love for them. But still I could not imagine leaving him, being apart from his love. So I pointed out the beach to him, each single grain of sand and how there were millions of them. Surely one small grain of sand in all of creation would not be so missed. Besides, they had a father, a wonderful loving father, to care for them and teach them, care for them and love them. Also, I had realized at that point that time was different and did not really matter. After all, as a mortal, how do you understand forever or eternity or no end? Life may appear long, hard, and dreary, but really it was a flash, equal to one grain of sand on that expansive beach. He brought my focus back to the beach, explaining, Notice again the beach and every individual grain of sand. Notice how each grain touches every other grain. If every individual grain of sand chose to remove itself, there would be no beach. I got it on all levels instantly. No one could replace me. No one was in fact replaceable, ever. Everyone must contribute their own unique part of the beach. Suddenly, it dawned on me that I had only witnessed the lives of three of my sons. Where is my baby? I asked. Why is he separated from his brothers? He is younger. He will be raised differently, was the reply. That cannot be, I said. His father would not let that happen. His father will not be with him long, I was given to understand. He will not have the influence on him that he does on your other sons. At this point, I witnessed a future event in the life of my husband, an accident in which he would lose his life. I did not bring this memory back with me, but somewhere in the corner of my mind, it remained. I would remember it vividly four years later as my husband lay dying. And there was still more for me to understand. The focus again fell on my infant son and hundreds if not thousands of my ancestors. I was aware of light surrounding many of them. They stood out. I felt tremendous love from them. Notice, he said, your ancestors, all these beings came together in your behalf to make you uniquely you. I realized in earth words that he was referring to my DNA. You wanted to go to earth to learn, to progress, to contribute to creation. All these spirits came together to help you do that. The focus then was back to my baby. In all of creation, he said, your infant son chose you to be his mother and none other. Together, he said, you have made a covenant to fill these roles in each other's earth life. 
this covenant is and was a very sacred covenant, not to be taken lightly. Suddenly, I could not wait to return to earth, to my sons, all four of them, to my family, to life on earth. But before doing so, I was brought to another level of awareness. It was as if when I was focused on him, that was my complete and only awareness. But when changing focus, such as on the beach, I saw much more. My life flashed before me. A life review was in order. When it was over, my head was hung in shame, for he had seen it too. I was not happy about many, many of my actions. Then in awe, I turned to him asking, how can you still love me so completely after witnessing my many sins? You are a child of God, he said, and God is love. I see you purely as love. There was no judgment, only love coming from him. In order for me to understand this, however, I needed to forgive myself and realize that I was part of divine love. Through the atonement, this was made possible. It's very difficult to explain. I only know I remember nothing that I saw in my life review. Only the memory of having one remains, and also of the love. My surroundings were then brought into focus as I became aware of a flower, a magnificent flower. It was rather like a perfect Gerber daisy, glowing in brilliant orange-hued colors. It was alive, and it loved me. In amazement, I turned to him in wonderment and awe, exclaiming, This flower loves me. I can feel it. Everything, he said, was made in love for you. Then I saw and felt all. It was me, and I was it. The firmament, with the colors alive and loving, stunning colors of light and water, each drop alive and loving. No words, no words. Now it really was time to return, but first I had one more question. Why me? I asked. What made me so special that I was allowed to have this happen to me? Nothing, he said. Love falls on everyone equally. Everyone is special. This was just something you needed to accomplish your chosen life mission. I was almost ready to return, but first I needed to secure a promise that I could soon return to him. Again, I felt his great mirth, his tremendous love for me, and his complete knowing of me, because you see, there really is no other option. We all return. He did then remind me that the only thing I would get to bring back with me was love, the love I gave away. When I left my body and was told it was not my time and that I needed to return, from that instant until I agreed to come back, the entire experience happened at a different level of consciousness. Okay, so that was Laura's near-death experience. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it had a lot of great imagery, and that's something we might be able to talk about a little bit um, as we go along here. I guess I'll just kind of start out by pointing out some of the 
common elements like we usually do. Um, so to start off, uh, in this one, uh, we, we start off her experience. She's had some kind of reaction to this blood transfusion. And she, uh, she says the first thing she notices is that she doesn't have any pain anymore. And she's in a void, a black void. Um, and this is something that you, you see sometimes in, in, in the beginning of near-death experiences, if you, if you want to call a beginning um, before going through a tunnel or, or some kind, uh, uh, sometimes the experience starts in kind of a blackness and then a light or presence appears or something and, and, and it changes. But people have called this the void, which is probably a good name for it. Um, but uh, she she mentions that she felt calm and peace in this void and that uh, uh, she knew she was dead. Her, her body had died, but her consciousness was continuing. Um, and from there, we have a meeting with Jesus. Um, she uh, meets Jesus and she feels overwhelming love, peace, uh, bliss, um, it's it's kind of a, a she uh, describes it quite um, uh, in a quite joyful way, um, so much so that uh, um, she even <laughs> gets into kind of an argument with Jesus about uh, her wanting to stay. But I'll get there in a second. Um, and to begin with, uh, something we've we've talked about many times is uh, what's emphasized is um, that the communication is. Uh, kind of different than what we have here. Uh, it's kind of automatic, um, purely. Uh, there's no misunderstandings. Um, it's it's just pure communication with with complete openness and transparency. Um, he, uh, I guess, Jesus kind of explains that it is um, uh, it is based on pure love. This communication, it's spoken through uh, the heart and the soul, and there's no, um, there's no misunderstandings, no, um, uh, you know, uh, trouble communicating what whatever, whatever is is being shared. So, um, so obviously that is something that we hear all the time. Uh, one of the most common features of near-death experiences, and that, again, is emphasized here. Um, so as most near-death experiences, you know, uh, <laughs> tend to uh, highlight, uh, uh, Laura is told that she can't stay there. And this um, uh, starts a little uh, series of the experience where Laura is kind of... Uh, arguing with with Jesus it seems kind of playful and not necessarily in, in any mean-spirited kind of way but arguing that she wants to stay there and he even she, she says can I plead my case and he's like yeah he laughs and he says sure you know I, I expect you to use your free will and so here we have the ex, the experience the uh, divine figure um, kind of explicitly uh, explicitly kind of acknowledging the the free will of, of the individual um, so she 
she feels completely at home. She says she feels com- everything about her is known. She's in perfect love. She, um, she says uh, that uh, he, she was a part of his creation and in her was the spark of God, um, the image of God, perhaps. Um, and she mentioned that he's all-knowing and all-love. Um, so uh, while she, she wants to stay there with him... Uh, they they kind of transport to a, a beach. Um, and, you know, this is a very uh, appropriate image, an appropriate symbol for, for this kind of, uh, I guess, crucial moment in the experience. And on the beach that she, she sees a, uh, her three sons and, um, and kind of gets a, 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 preview of what their future lives are going to be without her in it. Um, it's a way to kind of, uh, Jesus is showing Laura that, you know, these, your sons are, are going to, uh, not have as, as good a life as they could without you in it. And she, you know, she had kind of argued that, well, they have a great father and, um, you know, they can do fine without me. And so she, she's shown that, well, maybe she's actually needed um, in her role on earth um, and as a mother. So, um, again, this, this image of the beach, I think, is very significant and, and just its, its kind of meaning of a, a, a place where the opposites come together. Uh, that's something that we kind of talk about a lot uh, a symbol of totality of, of two worlds coming together. And, and it's quite, quite appropriate for this discussion because she's literally kind of dis- deciding which world she's going to uh, go to. Is she going to stay with Jesus or is she going to return? Um, so she, she's shown that, you know, her... Her three boys are, are going to have a tough time, and um, uh, she tries to make an argument saying, hey, let's look at these grains of sand. You know, if one grain of sand is is taken away, then it's not going to make a big difference. But Jesus counters that, well, if every grain of sand decided to do that, then there would be no beach. Each There's no grain of sand that isn't touching a different one, and so your actions have effects that go beyond um what you think that uh the 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 usual what you think of the scope of your actions you're actually very important and you're needed to fulfill certain things um and so that clicks for her and she um understands that she needs to go back to her sons um and and again you know grain of sand very poetic very particular image here we have Jesus uh, Jesus in allegories again, just like in the Bible, although uh, it's Laura that kind of initiates this one, and Jesus kind of uh, just twists it, twists her logic, um, and shows her what the truth is that she, you know, has a big role to play, and, and she has to fulfill that, or she should fulfill that. I, I don't suppose that she has to. He, he kind of makes it known that, that she can make her own choice. Um, and obviously, that's, that's something we see in, in many near-death experiences, that each of our actions 
big and small, and usually the small ones are emphasized. Um, each of our actions affects, you know, uh, countless different, uh, you know, um, reactions that, that come of, of whatever we do. And so um, that is something that, that shines through um, through many near-death experiences, and that's kind of one of the uh, big uh, big takeaways, I would say, from, from near-death experiences is to uh, be conscious of our actions and how they ripple out um, and affect people. Um, so after that kind of realization for Laura, she she um, notices that her youngest child, which she just gave birth to, was not present. And um, there she's told she gets this kind of, uh, I guess, future knowledge that um, the uh, father of her kids is going to have an accident. He's not going to be around. And um, I guess she she kind of doesn't really remember this until that time come of, kind of comes about in her life to where um, her husband has had an accident and is, is um, in a bad bad state and she kind of remembers this part of her experience that she was shown that uh, her husband was going to die um, and so it's kind of interesting um, a, a kind of a precognition of a future um, you know kind of inkling that was that was uh, in the back of her head the, you know once she came back and and she says that she she kind of knew that it was there was something that was going to happen, but she she didn't know exactly what. Um, and, and then the experience kind of doubles down um, on this this point, and she not only sees her, her infant son, but also um, all of her ancestors, all of her um, she says hundreds, if not thousands, of of her ancestors. We're all there. She's meeting quite an extended family, um, uh, and and Jesus kind of says, "Hey, all these all these people lived their lives and came together for for you to be where you are." He's he's kind of drilling this point home that you know um, each life is is a very unique point that that has uh, you know literally been millions of years in the making um, for each person to act out whatever their, if you want to say, destiny, karma, mission. Um, each person has their role to fulfill, even though we don't really know what that role is. We have to um, kind of just uh, trust in in our hearts and our uh, conscience and our um, intuitions to fulfill what we're supposed to do there are sometimes we know when we're not doing the right thing um sometimes it's harder to tell what the right thing is to do um but this is something that's emphasized and i wanted to to read a little bit of one of the questions that was asked at the end of the experience um which kind of gives a little more information about um this this section about meeting all her ancestors. Um, and the question is, 
did you encounter or become aware of any deceased or alive beings? And the answer is, yes, I was aware at some point of my progenitors. I was aware of hundreds of them, as it was explained to me that I had chosen to come to Earth to complete a certain mission. The mission was unique to me, but also had a universal impact. I needed a specific DNA, if you will, and my ancestors had united in love to give that to me. There were no mistakes in my birth. It was perfection, universal. And this actually reminds me of a, a quote um, that we had discussed when I was reading that uh, chapter by Carl Jung um, uh, on uh, life after death. Uh, one of the previous episodes, there was a, he mentioned um, this little, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, so I'm just going to read it real quick um, and then kind of relate it back to what we were talking about. Buddha was twice asked by his disciples whether a man's karma is personal or not. Each time he fended off the question and did not go into the matter. To know this, he said, would not contribute to liberating oneself from the illusion of existence. Buddha considered it far more useful for his disciples to meditate upon the nidana chain, that is, upon birth, life, old age, and death, and upon the cause and effect of suffering. I know no answer to the question of whether the karma which I live is the outcome of my past lives, or whether it is not rather the achievement of my ancestors, whose heritage comes together in me. Am I a combination of the lives of these ancestors, and do I embody these lives again? Have I lived before, in the past, as a specific personality, and did I progress so far in that life that I am now able to seek a solution? I do not know. Buddha left the question open, and I like to assume that he himself did not know with certainty. I could well imagine that I might have lived in former centuries and there encountered questions I was not yet able to answer, that I had to be born again because I had not fulfilled the task that was given to me. When I die, my deeds will follow along with me. That is how I imagine it. I will bring with me what I have done. In the meantime, it is important to ensure that I do not have to... Do, in the meantime, it is important to ensure that I do not stand at the end with empty hands. Buddha, too, seems to have had this thought when he tried to keep his disciples from wasting time on useless speculation. The meaning of my existence is that life has addressed a question to me. Or conversely, I myself am a question which is addressed to the world, and I must communicate my answer, for otherwise I am dependent upon the world's answer. That is a suprapersonal life task, which I accomplish only by effort and with difficulty. Perhaps it is a question which preoccupied my ancestors and which they could not answer. Could that be why I am so impressed by the fact that the conclusion of Faust contains no solution? Or by the problem on which Nietzsche foundered, the, Dione the Dionysian sign of life, to which the Christian seems to have lost the way? Or is it the restless Wotan Hermes of my Alemannic and Frankish ancestors who poses challenging riddles? Okay, so um, I know that was a little bit long, but he talk, talks quite a bit that, about that kind of uh, this idea of, of um, 
our ancestors coming together to to pose a question to us, to to give us an opportunity to have a mission. Um, and and I guess Jung here is, is kind of questioning whether um, this question or mission is uh, coming from his ancestors, if it's the karma of all the, the life that has preceded him, or if it is his own um, uh, reincarnation, his own past lives, which something we often see discussed in near-death experiences um, and elsewhere. But uh, So he's talking about this Buddhist question of, okay, karma, fate, it's what we have to do. It's our action. Is that personal to me or is that um, a, a collective thing, something that's coming from um, all the um, incidences that led to my creation or, or, and my presence? Um, and he he kind of talks about how it's it's kind of an open-ended type of question, but the um, presence of all these ancestors to prove uh, Jesus's point is is quite uh, poignant. Um, she she mentions that it's kind of like DNA, and and if you think about it, it's um, from what we understand of evolution, all life came from one single source. Or, the original, um, uh, the original strand of DNA that has branched out in countless variations over you know millions of years to to create such a diversity um, that it, it has its own kind of will to it and 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 it's it has led to each and every one of us in our own particular. Um, kind of configuration in our own our particular lives and, and our place. And, and near-death experiences often express the uh, idea that you choose where you're supposed to be and, and, and your parents. And, and that's something that is, is mentioned in this, that um, her newborn son is, uh, it says, uh, in all of creation, he said, your infant son chose you to be his mother and none other. Together you have made a covenant to fill these roles in each other's earth life. This covenant is and was a very sacred covenant and not to be taken lightly. So here it's uh, the, uh, Jesus is expressing that, um, you know, this is something that you chose to do. You and your son uh, are in a pact, in a covenant that um, you chose to, to have this, these relations with these other souls um, and they're necessary to fulfill a specific mission. And it's always kind of vague what, what the mission is. This is something that, you know, we just saw in the last episode as well, that uh, God has a plan, so to speak, and, and, and uh, it has to be fulfilled. Um, and, and it's just a very, it's very, puzzling, I guess, to think about why there has to be this kind of, I don't know, eschatology, this, uh, this uh, divine purpose, this development towards something. Um, I guess if you look at different sources, depending on what religion you are um, familiar with, it can be different things, whether it's to be liberated from 
reincarnation, the cycle of of uh, suffering and illusion in the Buddhist kind of context, or the creation of the heavenly city on earth in the Christian um, uh, kind of conception. So there's there's different ideas about what this purpose kind of is, and perhaps it's it's something of both. I, I don't know. Um, that's very it's very difficult to think about if if you know this whatever this realm is that people go into if it's um kind of a timeless and eternal and all-knowing that why why this has to be materialized in this particular way um some near-death experiences kind of express the idea that it's um it's kind of a um a rediscovery of it's God rediscovering himself in in a process of material form or something like that. Um, so it, it's very heady type of stuff, but um, you know it's it's very interesting to get these different kind of nuggets of of what um, we can learn from near death experiences of of what our purpose is, because apparently they all tend to express the idea that we have a purpose. I haven't read a <laughs> near-death experience that uh, said our lives are worthless and meaningless. I, I've, I've, you know, read tons at this point, and I've never seen that. Um, so it's just something to, to chew on, I guess. Um, so, and then we have a, a life review, um, and I guess everything was she went through her entire life, and she was quite ashamed of of some of her actions. And and Jesus, um, characteristically, uh, kind of shows her love and and support, and and says not to uh, that she that she is a child of God, and there's no, she should not be ashamed. Um. Um. And so then she has this. Uh, I guess part of this experience is is an interaction with a flower, uh, a daisy, which is brilliant, and and she sees um, that it's it's alive and it loves her, um, and and then she has this kind of experience of of everything being herself and and seeing herself and everything else in a, a pure connection of of everything together in this kind of love um, with you know, bright colors and, and, you know, it sounds very overwhelming. Um, now again, we have this, this particular image that the experience chose to, to express this flower. Um, you know, obviously flowers are very, uh, <laughs> significant, uh, symbols in our lives and particular religions. Um, in Buddhism, the lotus flower rec- representing um, enlightenment, the kind of um, even there's uh, associations of the Virgin Mary with the the image of a flower. Um, so, and obviously in our <laughs> daily lives, we give each other flowers as uh, symbols of sympathy and affection, and um, it's something that that is blooming, developing, growing. Um, uh, there's often talk of the heart flowering into um, union with God. Um, 
So obviously this is a very potent image again. Um, I'm not going to go into too much depth about it, but I, I bring these up um, just to try to, to make sense of these particular, um, uh, I guess, the, the imagery of, of a near-death experience. Is I've kind of mentioned throughout this that it is the experience itself that is choosing these particular images. I, I wouldn't say that Laura has any particular control over what um, she is interacting with. It seems like she can see herself and, and have a reflection of, of herself and, and to narrow her consciousness to focus in on something. But the um, experience has its own kind of purpose. Um, you know, we, we've seen this in, in almost all the the experiences we've read, particular images, a, a uh, universal water wheel, a, uh, an eye, a uh, giant egg, a, um, a central sun, all of these images are, are used according to what the experiencer needs to see, what they need to learn, what, whatever is trying to be expressed. And it's kind of an an automatic process, which um, I, I don't know if the experiencer can can take ownership of of saying I saw a, a flower because um, that I'm creating all of it. I, it seems to, to me like it has its own kind of uh, its own kind of purpose, which draws on uh, particular images that the experiencer has is familiar with uh, we saw in the in the uh, near-death experiences from Thailand that they all had particular um, cultural elements which were um, related to Thai uh, Theravada Buddhism um, and and their different mythologies and, and symbols and um, beliefs and it seems like these the, the experience draws on whatever the experiencer has in, in his or her um, symbolic vocabulary, so to speak, to express itself to the experiencer. I don't know if you if you want to call that oh God, it, it doesn't really matter what you want to call it. It, it has its own um, kind of expression to it. And um, I think that's a very, uh, it's very deep and profound thing to to I guess discuss because it's it's something we even see in our dreams in our our daily life. I mean, you can. I, I think I've said before on the podcast that you don't choose your dreams. Now you tend to take ownership of them, but it's not like you consciously decided to dream something whatever whatever your dream was now when you get into lucid dreaming there's a little more wiggle room but even in lucid dreaming there are certain things that um go beyond your control at least as far as i i am i have experienced but um so these near-death experience it's uh, it's something of its own 
its own doing, its own creation. And, and I, th- I think that's fascinating. That's uh, what, what led me to describe it as natural in the uh, last, uh, last episode. It's like even, even if you want to try to argue that near-death experiences are some kind of hallucination of a dying brain, which which I think is kind of simplistic, but um, it's still whatever these uh, full experiences of consciousness are, they're, they're not, um, they're not, <sighs> they're not your doing. They're kind of something that you get pulled into. It's something that, that you, um, are kind of along for the ride, like I mentioned before, and and I kind of see that reflected in our daily lives. That our the, our intuitions are the things that come to us; those the meaning that that grips us. Um, our dreams, which which we are which we are part of. It's it's not something that that we have direct control over. That we are. Or in relation with something that is alive, that that has its own will, and and I, I'm hesitant to write that off as something that is uh, that I control. I I would much rather try to uh, try to see myself as the smaller party in, in this in this uh, kind of drama that unfolds itself, which we see throughout our lives. So um, I think I'll, I'll end it there. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you would like to uh, reach out to me, you can do so uh, by sending me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com and check out our Facebook page. We're up on Spotify. We've got quite a few listeners on Spotify, so I think that's really cool. Um, and also, uh, uh, as you can tell from the beginning of the episode, um, I have a Patreon page. If you uh, get something out of these podcasts, if you know you you like listening to them and and want to give something back, um, please check out my Patreon page. Uh, anything that you can give to help keep this uh, pirate ship afloat uh, is much appreciated. So, um, and uh, if you want to follow along in my me along in my daily life, um, although I don't post very much, but uh, you can check out my Instagram, which is the Timberlion. Um, so now we will we will finish up with a quote on death. So since this near death experience was was pretty explicitly Christian, um, although not you know particularly dogmatically so, but she um, spent the entire time with Jesus. So we'll. Uh, We'll do a quote on death from the Bible, and this one is from Romans 14.8. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. <laughs>